Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 49, Theater and the Dionysia. Today's episode is brought to you by our July Patreon supporters, Justin Heron, Barbara Ishmael, Sherry Aiken, and Christopher Payall, as well as PayPal donors Mark Ibrahim. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com backslash the history of ancient Greece podcast or a one-time donor at www.paypal.me backslash Ryan Stitt. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. The invention of drama is among the most important of the many Greek contributions to Western civilization, and it heavily influenced the theater of ancient Rome and the Renaissance. After the destruction of Athens by the Persians, the town and the Acropolis were rebuilt, and theater became more formalized, and an even greater part of Athenian culture and civic pride. We may judge the importance attached to the theater by the Athenians from the degree to which the state was involved. As part of an official religious festival, the theatrical performances were organized and considerably financed by the state. The theater reached its greatest height in the 5th century BC, in large part because Pericles promoted and favored the theater with a series of practical and economic measures. The wealthiest families were obligated to care for and to sustain the choruses and actors. Plays were made by men, and were usually for men, and this platform was often used to reinforce those ideals. By this means, theatrical performances came to serve the moral and intellectual education of the people. Even the poorest of citizens could attend, because members of the audience, from the time of Pericles onwards, seemed to have had their admission charge of two obols paid by the state. And so, the passion of the Greeks for the theater was overwhelming. Later Athenian critics said that they spent more on the theater than they did on their fleet. When the cost for the shows became a sensitive subject, an admission fee was instated, alongside the theorica or Theoric, a special fund set aside to pay for the festival's expenses. And later on, a law was passed, punishing, by death, anyone who suggested that the money be used for military reasons in time of peace. There will be more on that in a future episode. The 5th century BC is normally regarded as the golden age of Greek theater, and many of these plays are still read by grade school and college students and produced on the stage today. These plays kept with the competitive spirit characteristic of many events held in honor of the gods. In fact, Greek tragedy essentially was an extension of the ancient rites carried out in honor of Dionysus, and one of the greatest events of the Athenian calendar year was the annual cult festival of the Dionysia, held in the spring and attracting many visitors to the city. As its name implies, the Dionysia was held in honor of the god Dionysus, and its religious aspect was highly important. It was held for five days, from the 10th to the 14th of the month Elephobolion, the lunar month straddling the vernal equinox, which would be March in the solar calendar. Three months after the royal Dionysia, more on that shortly, probably to celebrate the end of winter and the harvesting of the year's vines. As we discussed in episode 26, the Dionysia became popular at Athens during the rule of the Pisistratids. 
According to tradition, after Eleutheri, a town on the Boeotian and Attic border, had chosen to become part of Attica, the Eleutherians brought the cult image of Dionysus to Athens. At the same time, the sanctuary of Dionysus was founded and was the earliest complex of monuments on the southern slope of the Acropolis. Dionysus was worshipped there as Eleutherius, due to where he came from. The Dionysia that grew up around the sanctuary was soon established at Athens shortly thereafter. One of our issues is the extent to which the Dionysia is a religious festival and the extent to which it is a civic, political festival that is the product of democracy. There are some scholars who argue that drama in a festival like the Dionysia would not have developed anywhere else other than in a democracy. So there's a question about the relationship between drama and democracy. Certainly, it began as a religious festival, but over time, as the democracy and the empire grew, it also has very strong civic elements to it. Our earliest source for the origins of Greek tragedy is found within the Poetics of Aristotle. He writes that in the earliest festivals, choirs of satyrs, who were the attendants of Dionysus, wore goatskins and honored the god by conversing with their leader in dithrams probably accompanied by an aulis. Dithrams were songs about stories from mythology, with choric refrains. In this case, they relate at some event in the life of Dionysus. Therefore, tragedy, or tragodia in the Greek, probably originally meant goat song, from the Greek words tragos, or goat, and ode, or song. In this way, the satyr dithrams sung at the Dionysia were the forerunner of tragedy. They were brief and burlesque in tone, but gradually, the language became more serious and the meter changed to trochaic tetrameter. Greek tragedy, as we know it, took another massive step during one of these festivals when a man named Thespis stepped out from the chorus and performed a solo, essentially becoming the first person ever to appear on stage as an actor playing a character in a play, instead of speaking collectively in a chorus. Since the Greek word for actor, Hippocriti also means answerer. Some scholars suppose that Thespis was probably just the chorus leader who initially answered questions asked to him by the chorus. Over time, there was a transformation of the chorus leader into a dramatized actor. He is also credited with introducing a new style in which one actor performed the words of multiple characters in a story, distinguishing between each character with the aid of a different mask. This new style would be called tragedy and Thespis was the most popular exponent of it. Eventually, competitions to find the best tragedy were instituted at the Dionysia, and Thespis naturally won the first documented competition in 534 BC. His award was reportedly a goat, a common symbol for Dionysus, and this prize has been suggested by some, who disagree with Aristotle, to be the real origin of the word tragedy, and not the goat skins that the satyr choruses wore. Regardless, Thespis also invented theatrical touring, in which he carried his costumes, masks, and other props in a horse-drawn wagon to other Attic cities in the rural countryside in order to put on his plays. Because of all of this, he is often called the father of tragedy, and in English, a common term for a performer is thespian. As we have alluded to, the Dionysia was originally a rural festival in Eleutheri, a city on the border of Attica and Boeotia that celebrated the cultivation of the vines. When the cult of Dionysus was spread to Athens, the deme of Icaria, on the northern side of Mount Pentelikos, 
was the first to embrace him as an Olympian god, and so they consecrated a royal sanctuary to Dionysus. According to myth, while the god was traveling, a man named Icarios welcomed a disguised Dionysus into his home, offering him fresh goat's milk, food, and shelter. Moved by his hospitality, Dionysus revealed to him that he was a god, giving to him the first grapevine and teaching him how to plant it and make wine from it. Delighted with this wonderful drink, which brought happiness and drowned sorrows, Icarius filled several goatskin bags with wine and traveled around the countryside, sharing this new drink with the local inhabitants. Unfortunately, some shepherds on Mount Pentelicos drank too much of the magic drink, undiluted with water, and so they began to feel dizzy and see double. They suspected that Icarius had poisoned them, and in their drunken state, they killed him. In order to atone for their sins, the locals were instructed to sacrifice the first grapes harvested every year to the memory of Icarios. Thus, out of this first tragic contact between the god Dionysus and the people of Attica, there arose the earliest Dionysic worship in the deem called Icaria, after the man who was kind to the god. The local inhabitants continued to worship Dionysus for centuries in a festival every year, in which they drank, feasted, sang, danced, and paraded around the village with a goat to sacrifice. Over time, this so-called royal Dionysia would be exported to other deems throughout Attica. This royal Dionysia was held during the month of Poseidon, the lunar month straddling the winter solstice, which would be December in the solar calendar. They too had contests of dancing and singing to the accompaniment of the Aulus, and choruses would perform dithrams. After Thespis had introduced it, presumably during his theatrical tours in the Attic countryside, some of these rural festivals may have also included dramatic performances of their own, possibly of the tragedies and comedies that had been produced the previous year at the so-called City Dionysia, or the Dionysia at Athens in the springtime. This was more common in the larger rural towns, though. The smaller towns may not have had the budget needed to put on such a festival. Because the various towns in Attica held their festivals on different days, it was possible for spectators to visit more than one festival per season. It was also an opportunity for Athenian citizens to travel outside the city if they did not have the opportunity to do so during the rest of the year. This also allowed traveling companies of actors to perform in more than one town each year. The comic playwright Aristophanes parodied the royal Dionysia in his play, The Acarnians. In order to avoid confusion and repetitiveness, though, henceforth when referring to the Dionysia, I'm actually speaking about the city Dionysia at Athens. If I'm referring to a royal Dionysia in a specific deme, I will just say royal Dionysia and where it's located. But it is very important to note that there were miniature versions of this festival throughout Attica and they followed relatively the same program, though a royal Dionysia was naturally not as extravagant or as prestigious as the city Dionysia in Athens. Unlike the ancestral rites of the Linnea and Anthesteria, which were the responsibility of the Basileus Archon, the Dionysia was treated like a newer festival and placed under the jurisdiction of the eponymous Archon. Every year to prepare for the Dionysia, as soon as the eponymous Archon was elected, he would choose his two paradroi, or officials, and ten epimeletai, or curators, to help organize the festival. The day before the festival started, 
The old wooden cult image of Dionysus was moved from its sanctuary on the southern slope of the Acropolis to just outside the city walls near the Dipolon Gate on the road to Boeotia. On the first day of the festival took place the bringing in, or Isagoge, of Dionysus' cult image back to its shrine in a magnificent procession called Pompeii to commemorate its original journey from Eleutheri. And so the god during the festival was worshipped as Dionysus Eleutheros. All Athenian citizens, medics and representatives from Athenian colonies, were allowed to march in this procession back to its sanctuary at the Theater of Dionysus. They carried symbolic representations of the male sexual organ, called thalloi, made of wood or bronze and aloft on poles, while others pulled a cart with a much larger phallus. They did this because these were fertility symbols associated quite often with Dionysus. According to tradition, when the cult of Dionysus was initially brought to the Athenians, they had rejected it. So as punishment, the Athenians were inflicted with a plague that affected the male genitalia. It doesn't mention the symptoms, but it was probably very painful nonetheless. Luckily, the Athenians put two and two together, and the pain subsequently went away once they accepted Dionysus into their midst. Well, this tradition was recalled each year by this massive procession of citizens carrying these phalloi. So basically, what you have here is a parade of people carrying large poles with male sexual organs attached on the end. During the height of the Athenian Empire in the mid-5th century BC, various gifts and weapons showcasing Athens' strength were carried in this procession as well. Also included were bulls and goats to be sacrificed in the theater at the altar of Dionysus. In addition to the phalophoroi, or the phallus carriers, there were canaphoroi, or young maidens of noble birth, who carried baskets, ableliaphoroi, or those who carried long loaves of bread, scaphophoroi, or those who carried other offerings, hydriaphoroi, or those who carried jars of water, and oscophoroi or those who carried jars of wine. All of this would be needed for the great feast. The most conspicuous members of the procession were the choregoi, or the sponsors of the plays, who were dressed in the most expensive and ornate clothing. They were wealthy citizens who undertook the payment for the training and costumes of the chorus as a public service. The procession traveled through the agora, pausing at various altars to allow choruses to perform. The cult statue of Dionysus was eventually placed at the altar of the twelve gods in the Agora, where they celebrated a xenismos, a ritual reception and entertaining of a guest or foreigner. An escort of Ephibes, or young men, then took the statue to the theater and placed it in the orchestra. After the procession ended, then there was a killing of a pig, whose carcass was then carried around the performance space in order to purify it. There were also libations poured to the god by the ten strategoi not the priests. This is very significant in that these were the democratic leaders, and the Dionysia was not only a religious festival, but a celebration of the Athenian state. Furthermore, after the transfer of the treasury from Delos, the tribute of the allies of the Athenian Empire was brought into the theater at this point. Finally, with all the pomp and circumstance having been completed, the first competitions took place with the Choregoi, leading their tribal choruses in the singing of dithrams for both men and boys. These were extremely competitive, and the best flute and lyre players, and celebrity poets, such as Simonides, Bacchylides, and Pindar, offered their musical and lyrical services. 
Afterwards, the bulls were sacrificed, and a great feast was held for all citizens of Athens. In the evening took place a second procession, called the Komos. The believers dressed as Selenoi and satyrs, the gods' attendants, and danced the cyclical dithyrambic dance, and what essentially was drunken revelry throughout the streets. It represented liberation from social norms. Dionysus was the god of wine and ecstasy, after all. The next day began the centerpiece of the festival, that being the drama competitions held in the theater. Every year, the eponymous archon selected three playwrights for this honor. This procedure may have been based on some sort of provisional script. The three selected, though, were granted a chorus and actors at the state's expense and were assigned to Archragos. His willingness or lack thereof to spend lavishly on their props and training could make all the difference to a playwright's chances for victory. Each playwright submitted three tragedies, plus a shorter satyr play, so named because the actors portrayed half-human, half-goat-like figures in a comedic, burlesque version of a mythological subject. The three tragedies were performed in sequence over a full day, from sunrise to sunset. At the end of the last play, the satyr play was staged in order to revive the spirits of the public, who were possibly depressed by the events of the tragedies. Eventually, a second competition was added of five comedic playwrights who each presented a single play. When this happened, the comedic contest was held the day before the three days of tragedy. Comedy and tragedy were viewed as completely separate genres, and no plays ever merged aspects of the two. The winners of both were decided by a panel of ten citizens, called the Agonothetai, and were chosen by lot. This event was referred to as the Proagone, or pre-contest. It took place two days prior to the start of the festival. It is unknown where the Proagone originally took place, but after the mid-5th century BC, it was held in the Odeon of Pericles, also at the foot of the Acropolis, which was also the place where the dithyrambic singing competitions would have been held. It was during the Proagon that the playwrights formally introduced the titles of their plays and the actors who would be performing in it. The Proagon was also used to give announcements or praise to notable citizens, or foreigners, who had served Athens in some beneficial way during the year, as well as to read out the names of slaves who had been freed. During the Peloponnesian War, orphan children of those who had been killed in battle were also paraded in the Odeon during the Proagon, dressed in full hoplite armor to honor their fathers. These boys were then given seats of honor in the theater. It should be noted that not even the Peloponnesian War stopped the Athenians from celebrating the Dionysia. At the end of the dramatic performances, these ten agonothetai placed a tablet inscribed with the name of their choice inside a vase. Final decisions for the victors rested on the majority vote winner of five selected tablets drawn at random. So with three total playwrights and five total votes drawn, at least three were needed for a majority victory. Presumably, this entire method was meant to keep playwrights, as well as the Kuregoi, from buying off judges before and during the festival. Then, the victorious playwrights were presented by the Archon with crowns of ivory. The victorious Kuregos also received a bronze tripod inscribed with his own name. Oftentimes, they would set this atop a stone pillar or a miniature round monument to commemorate the victory. 
on the southeast side of the Acropolis, leading to the Theater of Dionysus, a long street of these choragic monuments symbolized the public spirit of the citizens. And this street of tripods shows perhaps more impressively than any other evidence how much significance the state attached to the theater and to the worship of Dionysus. Following this awards ceremony, another procession and celebration of the victors took place. Oftentimes, the victorious Corregos spent even more money and threw a sort of celebration after-party for his cast. Finally, at the end of the festival, there was a special session of the Ecclesia, held within the theater to discuss how the whole thing went. The dramatic competition lasted for four days, taking place in the open-air theater of Dionysus, which can still be seen, though with subsequent alterations, on the southern slope of the Acropolis. Quite a few other Greek theaters survive, such as that at Delphi, on the hillside of Mount Parnassus, and perhaps, finest of all, that at Epidaros in the Peloponnese. Some of these theaters are actually still in use. However, the structures which survive are made of stone, and therefore belong to the 4th century BC or later, because in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, the stage building and seating were wooden, only later being made more permanent by the use of stone. In the 6th century BC, however, dramatic competitions were probably held in the Agora, with spectators seated on wooden bleachers, called Icria, set up around a flat circular area, or the orchestra. But when the Icria collapsed in the early 5th century BC, an event attested in the ancient sources, the dramatic and musical contests were moved to the Sanctuary of Dionysus, where a sloping site was chosen since it created a natural auditorium with the audience on banked tiers of seats. This was the theatron, or viewing place, being no more than a semicircle in shape. Later the term theater came to be applied to the whole area, but at first it was just the place where the audience sat. No doubt the audience brought cushions with them, for this was not going to be the theater as we know it. Eventually, Vendors sold food, sweets, and wine, and the audience would typically eat and drink while the performances were going on. A capacity audience seems to have been between 15 and 20,000 spectators, with 64 rows of seats, overlooking an open circular area in front of a slightly raised stage platform. It is uncertain to what extent, if at all, women, children, and slaves were allowed to attend. Women seem to have attended the theater in the 4th century BC, but it is unclear whether they had been allowed in the 5th century BC. Certainly, though, the bulk of the audience was made up by the adult male citizens, sitting in the blocks of seats allocated to their tribes. In this way, the layout of the theater is analogous to the ecclesia on the Pnyx. In fact, meetings of the ecclesia were known to have sometimes been held in the theater. There were also a large number of metoikoi, and distinguished visitors from other cities. In the front rows were special seats for these visitors, called the prohedria, as well as for important officials, like the epomeletai, the curators, and the agonathetai, the judges, at the center of whom sat the priest of Dionysus. An altar to the god was situated in the middle of the circular area, between the audience and the stage building. In order to ensure fairness in the theatrical competition, all tragedies were required to have the same size cast, though all parts were played by men, three actors to play the speaking roles, and 12 to 15 chorus members, for a grand total of 15 to 18. Although the chorus leader, called the Corypheus, 
sometimes engaged in dialogue with the actors. Their main role oftentimes was to comment on events in the play, sort of like a narrator, during which they performed songs and dances in the circular area in front of the stage, called the orchestra, or literally, dancing place, to the accompaniment of a flute player. Originally, this area was made of only packed earth, but like the seats later, it too would be paved with stone. Gradually, the chorus's importance declined, and at times, they would come to seem little more than interludes. Since all the actors' lines were in verse with special rhythms, the musical aspect of the chorus's role was simply an elaboration of the overall poetic nature of Athenian tragedy. To the rear of the orchestra stood a low stage in a stage building called a skene, from which we get the word scene. The skene provided a backdrop, and behind it, the actors could change and properties could be stored. In addition, the death of a character was always heard from coming behind the skene, either because it was considered inappropriate to show a killing in view of the audience, or that it had a more dramatic effect. Scholars tend to disagree. Regardless, little scenery was used, and no attempt was made to produce a realistic set. The stage building itself, which had a central door and probably others to the sides, usually represented a palace, a house, or a temple. Some use seems to have been made of painted screens and back cloths to suggest, for instance, rocks in the sea or a city in the distant background. By the end of the 5th century BC, a stone scene wall called a paraskenia, literally, in place of a skene, became a common supplement to the skene in the theaters. In particular, the one in Athens was two stories high. The upper story was called the episkenion, literally, above the skene. A paraskenia also had projecting sides behind which was the proskenion, literally, in front of the skene. This simplifies the hiding and obscuring of objects from the audience's view, as anything that was not meant to be seen was simply placed behind the proskenion. Portable statues of gods and goddesses could also be used to indicate the setting, such as Apollo for the Temple of Delphi, Athena for Athens, and so forth. Painted wooden tablets, called panaches, also could be hung to create scenery. Generally, however, such items were kept to a minimum perhaps just a single statue, throne, or an altar. What was said in the theater was far more important than what was seen, and the playwright relied principally on the power of his words to set the scene in the imagination of his audience. This was particularly true of the many descriptive speeches made by messengers in the plays. And so the few objects on stage were intended merely to suggest, in a traditional way, the setting which the audience was supposed to visualize. Similarly, the spaces between the sides of the stage and the seating, called the paradoi or isodoi, had an established significance. An actor arriving through the one on the right would immediately be known by the audience at Athens to have come from the city or the harbor, while entry from the left denoted arrival from the Attic countryside. A parados, the singular, was also the name of the first song sung by the chorus as they entered the orchestra area presumably because they had just came through a parados. Some theaters also had a raised speaking place on the orchestra, called a logion, where actors could go to belt out their monologues. Even though scenery on the stage was sparse, a good tragedy still presented a vivid spectacle. 
The chorus wore elaborate decorative costumes and trained hard to put on intricate dance routines. The actors wore masks and used broad gestures and booming voices to reach the upper tier of seats. A more powerful voice was crucial because words represented the heart of tragedy, in which dialogue and speeches were far more common than physical action. Multiple levels and special effects, however, were also part of the spectacle. In addition to the ordinary low stage, the flat roof of the stage building was sometimes used as an acting area. Furthermore, a crane, called mechane, operated by wood beams, ropes, and pulleys, was used in order for characters to be shown airborne, flying to and from the stage. For example, a crane allowed actors playing the roles of deities to fly suddenly onto the stage, like superheroes in a modern movie, or sometimes even on winged chariots. The gods or goddesses often arrived at a timely moment, usually the end, to sort out human affairs. The latter Latin phrase for this, deus ex machina, has become a standard way of describing such a convenient arrival. Other stage equipment included trapdoors and a device known as a echiclema, or a wheeled platform, which could be rolled forward through the central door of the skene. It enabled for interior scenes to be brought out into the sight of the audience, such as the aftermath of a murder in a palace, which the stage building represented, since, as we mentioned, scenes of violence were never shown happening on stage. In fact, this device was mainly used in tragedies for revealing dead bodies. Conversely, in comedy, it was used to parody tragic effect and to further enhance the comic absurdity. The actors from all of the tragedies playing the lead roles, called the protagonists, which literally means the first competitors, were also competing against each other for the designation of best actor. So important was it to have a first-rate lead actor to provide a successful tragedy that protagonists were assigned by lot to the competing playwrights of the year to give all three an equal chance to have the finest cast. Great protagonists became enormously popular figures, although they were not usually members of the social elite. The playwrights, on the other hand, served as director, producer, musical composer, choreographer, and sometimes even as one of the actors. Only men of some wealth could afford the tremendous amounts of time such work demanded, because the prizes in the tragedy competition, like that of the athletic games, were modest. As citizens, playwrights also fulfilled the normal military and political obligations of an Athenian man. The actors in tragedies were usually portraying heroes of legend or remote history, or even deities. To do justice to these roles, they wore majestic flowing robes, rather like a priest, richly colored and patterned. They wore special boots, called kothornoi, which became symbolic of tragedy as a whole. They were loose enough to fit either leg. Later on, so that the tragic actors might even look more impressive, their kothornoi were given a much thicker sole, and their bodies were padded under the costumes. In the comedies, the costumes of the actors were intentionally ridiculous. The comedic actors wore flat slippers, called socks, and a great deal of padding was used to distort their figures. They also wore short tunics, beneath which they often had phalloi strapped to their bodies. Of the nine muses, two of them are associated with a the theater. Melpomene is the muse of tragedy, and she is often depicted holding the tragic mask and wearing kathornoi. Thalia is the muse of comedy, and she similarly is associated with the comedic masks and socks. Until 449 BC, 
Only dramatic works were awarded prizes in the Agon. But after that, actors also became eligible for recognition. It was considered a great honor to win the comedic prize at the Dionysia, despite the belief that comedies were of secondary importance. The Linneo Festival featured comedy more prominently and officially recognized comedic performances with prizes in 442 BC. There will be more on this festival and comedy in a future episode. Strange as it may seem to us, all of the actors wore masks, called prosopone, which literally means face. They were a significant element in the worship of Dionysus, likely used in all ceremonial rites and celebrations. Most of our evidence of them comes from a few 5th century BC vases, such as the so-called pronomos vase, which depicts actors preparing for a satyr play. No physical evidence of masks remain available to us, as they were made of lightweight organic materials, such as leather, linen, cork, or wood, all properly fitted to the faces of the actors or chorus members. This material also allowed them to be painted. For example, satyr masks were painted red, and those depicting females were generally white. Furthermore, they were dedicated at the altar of Dionysus after performances. We also have some clay-sculpted molds of masks and images on later Roman mosaics. Masks held a very important function in Greek theater. Since there were only three actors, and since the leading actor only played one part, the other two had to take all of the remaining roles, including those of females. Masks obviously facilitated the deception, and they were the only part of the costume which was changed, so a switch of character could be made very quickly indeed. They had small mouth openings, preventing the mouth from being seen during performances, but the shape allowed it to function like a megaphone, and thus they made for good acoustics. Also, in a large open-air theater, it was 100 meters or more from the back row to the stage at Athens, subtle facial expressions would have been lost to a great part of the audience, but the exaggerated features of a mask could be seen. Either human or animal hair was attached to the masks, and so there were no separate wigs. After the 5th century BC, the hair was sometimes built up into a conical shape to give the impression of extra height. Their different variations help the audience to distinguish sex, age, and social status, in addition to revealing a change in a particular character's appearance, such as Oedipus after he blinded himself. Unique masks were also created for specific characters and events in a play, such as the Furies and Aeschylus' Eumenides. In fact, according to a later account of Aeschylus's life, as they walked on stage in the first performance of the Eumenides, the chorus of Furies were so frightening in appearance that they caused young children to faint, patriarchs to urinate, and pregnant women to go into labor. And so, these masks had the ability to create a sense of dread in the audience, creating large-scale panic, especially since they had intensely exaggerated facial features and expressions. On the other hand, although there was 12 to 15 members in a chorus, they all wore the same mask because they were considered to be representing one character. And so the masks worn by the chorus helped to create a sense of unity and uniformity. If the outrageous costumes and masks didn't already give you a hint, Greek tragedy was never intended to be naturalistic. Characters in Greek tragedy were not like characters in modern films or novels, whom one might expect to recognize walking down the street or whose character traits might appear in someone you know. They represented humankind in all of its aspiration and frailty. They are not easy to like or dislike, for they were not intended to be lifelike, flesh-and-blood individuals. 
nor was the material of tragedy anything one could call a slice of life. Tragedy was meant to be heroic and grand, far removed from the trivial and the mundane. Plots were generally taken from the rich myths of the heroic age, with a few exceptions, such as Aeschylus' The Persians. But even this achieves a certain remoteness by setting the action in the faraway Near East, not back in Athens. Formalities of several kinds limited the playwright in his choice of material too. Aristotle, who wrote the first critical study of tragedy, called the Poetics, lays out three unities that he believed every play should have. Those being unity of action, a play should have one main action that it follows with no or few subplots. Unity of place, a play should cover a single physical space and should not attempt to compress geography, nor should the stage represent more than one place. And unity of time, the action in a play should take place over no more than 24 hours. He also asserts that a play must be complete, and in order to be complete, it must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The tragedy usually begins with a prologue, from pro and logos, meaning the speech before, in which one or more characters introduce the drama and explain the background of the ensuing story. The prologue is followed by the parados, or the entry of the characters, after which the story unfolds through three or more episodia, or episodes. These episodes are interspersed by stasima, the singular being stasimon which are choral interludes explaining or commenting on the situation developing in the play. The tragedy ends with the exodus, concluding the story. Some plays do not adhere to this conventional structure, though. For example, Aeschylus's The Persians and Seven Against Thebes each have no prologue. Finally, the author had to contend with a challenge posed by the intricate meters of tragic verse. The spoken parts usually employed the iambic trimeter, which Aristotle describes as the most natural speaking meter, while the choral parts relied on a variety of lyric meters. The struggle of the playwrights to mold drama within all of these constraints constituted a form of heroism in itself. The same stories were used quite often by different writers. The audience, in any case, had usually known from their childhood the outlines of the legends involved. They did not expect to hear a new story, but a new treatment of a familiar story. This allowed the playwright to develop details of the story without complicated explanations. Disasters, deserved or undeserved, bloody revenge, and agonizing problems of conscience are among the most common themes of tragedy. The plots often involve dramatic irony, that being situations where the audience recognizes the facts before the characters on the stage do. And there are a great many remarkable coincidences. These factors, as well as the often despairing songs of the chorus, the absence of much action on the stage itself, and the many speeches made by messengers, combine to make these plays strange affairs to modern viewers. They were perhaps not very relaxing entertainment, but the philosopher Aristotle considered that the fear and pity that they aroused had a cleansing effect, called catharsis on the minds of the audience, as these plays discuss the most profound questions of human life. In addition to catharsis, he also speaks a great deal on the concept of mimesis, or an imitation of human affairs. He writes, quote, Tragedy is, therefore, an imitation of a noble and complete action, which through compassion and fear produces purification of the passions. End quote. Tragedy was at its base a public art form, 
an expression of the polis that explored the ethical quandaries of human beings in conflict with the gods and with one another in a polis-like community. Even though the plots of most tragedies were based on stories that harkened back to a time before the polis, those of myth, the moral issues illuminated by the plays always pertain to the society and obligations of citizens in a polis. In this way, the plays often acted as a metaphor for the deep-seated problems of contemporaneous Athenian society. Characters in the plays debated issues in a manner reminiscent of speeches that would have been heard in the law courts and the ecclesia. The plays also often deal with conflicts between the household oikos and the polis, as well as familial roles and interrelations and transgressions within the family unit. People often reach beyond the bounds of normal behavior, resulting in the dissolution and collapse of the social order, showing the fragility of civilized values and the way human beings can devolve into something barbaric, as the Greeks would say, in the face of war and imperial conquest. There's also a concern with language and the way meanings change, as words can be distorted and used to deceive, as language has the capacity to blur, as well as to clarify. These are all issues of democracy, especially language, where matters of public policy are debated in the ecclesia with speeches. These issues are arguably fundamental to the running of democracy, as they are present and immediate to people making decisions on how to run their city. Also, the plays portray the social and psychological consequences of the disenfranchised and the subordination of women, which really fits into a wider exploration beyond the immediate concerns of the polis, those being human issues, such as sexuality, the relationship between civilization and nature and with the gods, and the role of fate in determining the outcome of one's life. There's certainly an argument to make that these kind of plays, with the issues that they ask the audience to think about, would not have been aired in a society where the people weren't directly making policies that impacted themselves. While these plays have this civic framework, we must also be conscientious of the religious framework, which perhaps is what gives the playwrights such a freedom to think outside the box. Dionysus was more than just the god of wine and intoxication. He was a mind-bending, identity-questioning, conscientious god, and so he was the perfect god for the kinds of questionings that were being asked in these plays. Furthermore, while both tragedy and comedy sometimes enact transgressive behaviors, as the playwrights question, examine, and often subvert the forms and language of the city's order, nevertheless, they do not seriously question the polis as the necessary basis of civilization. In fact, they all agree that Athens is the place where civilization truly manifests. And even after all of the suffering and death of great individuals that happens in the plays, the larger collective lives on. And that's kind of a perfect sentiment for the polis conscientiousness, that being the enduring life of the city. Although today, we can dig deeper into these tragedies and examine the underlying messages and emotions that they evoke, we cannot know for certain the precise understanding that the Athenian people had of what was presented to them. But they must have been aware that the central characters of the plays were figures who fell into disaster from positions of power and prestige. Their reversals of fortune came about not because they are absolute villains, but because, as human beings, they are susceptible to a lethal mixture of error, ignorance, and hubris. The Athenian Empire was at its height when audiences at Athens were seeing the tragic plays of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. The presentation of the plays at the Dionysia was preceded by a procession inside the theater to display the revenues of Athens received from the tribute of the allies of the Delian League. 
all the Athenian men in the audience were actual or potential combat veterans in the Delian League fleet or the Hoplite army, and thus were personally acquainted with the possibility of having to endure or inflict violence in the service of their polis. Thoughtful spectators would have perhaps reflected on the possibility that Athens' current power and prestige, managed as it was by human beings, remained hostage to the same forces taught by the playwrights that controlled the often bloody fates of the heroes and the heroines of tragedy. These plays certainly had appeal as they were engrossing in terms of entertainment, but they also had an educative function to remind the citizens who made the policy themselves in the ecclesia that success and the force needed to maintain it engendered problems of moral complexity too formidable to be fathomed casually or arrogantly. Tragedy thus performed a central role in the spiritual and intellectual life of the polis. Wealthy citizens vied for the honor and acclaim of being a Koregos and undertaking the expense of funding and training choruses, and during the Dionysia, actors and audiences alike needed enormous stamina. Groups of actors performed four dramas in a day, perhaps ten hours of performance, with intervals in between, but not during each play. Spectators had to not only follow the intricate poetry of the choruses, but to turn up the next day and the day after that to compare the work of each playwright in order to determine who should receive the prize. Although the panel of judges chose the winner, they no doubt were influenced by the audience's reaction. The audience also no doubt had amongst themselves a lively dialogue about the painful issues that the dramas had raised. Even in eras of comparatively high literacy, ancient cultures remained oral to a considerable degree, and absorbing the complex imagery of Greek tragic choruses was not as difficult for people trained to listen and remember as it would be for most people today. Nonetheless, the popularity of these performances that demanded serious intellectual work on the part of the audience tells us something about the richness of Greek culture and identity. Over 30 tragedies have survived. What is missing, though, is any record of the discussions that the performances must have inspired amongst friends and neighbors who had enjoyed the shared treasure of the community. In a world where entertainment of this kind was not readily available, an Athenian citizen must have looked forward greatly to this occasion. They were fortunate, in the 5th century BC especially, in the quality of the plays produced. In the tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and the comic poet, Aristophanes, the Athenians had outstanding playwrights. And the works of those men will be the subject of our next few episodes. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 50, Early Tragedy and Aeschylus. (laughs) 